The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk and should not be considered legal, business, or medical advice. Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Maze podcast. My name is Mike McLafferty, and I'm the CEO and founder of MGM Advisory and Educational Services. Today, we are going to discuss the influence of private equity in physician practices. We're pleased to have today as our guest, Pete Greenbaum. Pete is the co-chair of the corporate group and a member of the health law group at Wilentz, Goldman, and Spitzer for over 20 years. He provides regulatory and corporate advice to hospitals, ambulatory surgery centers, physicians, professional practices, dentists, chiropractors, and other healthcare providers and businesses. Pete is a member of the New Jersey State and Middlesex County Bar Associations and a member of the Health Law Section, Business Law Section, and Internet and Computer Law Section. He also serves as the director of the Edison Chamber of Commerce Board. Pete, welcome. Thank you for being uh, on the show as a guest. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and Wilentz. Thank you, Michael. And first, thank you for having me. Um, looking forward to this. Just a quick background about myself and the firm. My firm, Wilentz, Goldman & Spitzer. We are a New Jersey-based law firm and one of the largest in, in the state. We've recently celebrated a few years ago our 100-year anniversary. We've got over uh, 100 attorneys scattered through our main office in Woodbridge, and then we have shore offices in New Jersey, as well as Philly uh, and New York City. But the principal concentration of the attorneys are in Woodbridge. Everybody specializes in something the way it's set up. And uh, Michael, as you mentioned, I am a corporate healthcare attorney. Uh, so I'm the co-chair of the corporate team. And under that is the healthcare practice. And as you mentioned, I represent hospitals, physician groups, and basically anybody in the healthcare space in both regulatory and healthcare corporate and just general corporate counseling guidance. Oh, it's interesting. Both of us have been in the healthcare industry for a long time now. And it's something years ago I used to say, and I, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to say it every year, but it's not boring being in the healthcare industry. <laughs> there seems, it seems like there's so much going on all the time, not just from the physician and patient point of view, but also from the corporate point of view, as far as these uh, individual practices and health systems and all the consolidation going on in the industry. And it's just unbelievable the breadth of these different deals we see now taking place. I couldn't agree more. And when you think you get your arms around something, the market changes, whether it's from a regulatory standpoint, whether a new law comes into play that changes the landscape or what we're talking about today, the economics and the business side of healthcare changes and, and evolves as I said, there's you and I have discussed prior to the podcast, there's all different types of deals going on right now for physician organizations. And uh, we wanted to focus on the influence of private equity and healthcare organizations today. But one of the things I think we should talk about is the difference between working with a private equity firm 
versus a venture capital firm? Great question, Mike. I mean, so they both basically infuse money into a business. That's the starting point. The big difference is a venture capital firm typically focuses on a start with maybe more of an idea rather than a an, an idea and a business plan rather than a product that's mature in the market making money. In other words, it's often a group of individuals that again has some idea that is a good idea that can influence the market, change the market, and a uh, venture capital firm sees that, sees the potential long-term benefit to this product, understands that at that moment, there may be no profit. And quite frankly, there may be no revenue even on the table. It might be more of an idea than anything else. Private equity oftentimes is focused on certainly, or maybe not a mature business, so to speak, but certainly a business with a balance sheet that is making money, perhaps making a profit, perhaps making a good profit. But at the end of the day, the private equity's mindset is to come in and try to figure out cost-effective ways to cut some of the expenses, cut some of the overhead, and at the same time, expanding the revenue base. Uh, But both of those components are already there and in a way that can be massaged. And again, from VC perspective, perhaps neither of those components are there, or maybe it's all expenses and no revenue. So it's a totally different mindset. The VC is often terms in there for a much longer duration. The private equity, they say, uh, and obviously it depends on what private equity firm you're talking about, but a lot of times in the healthcare space specifically, the private equity model is to come in. Uh, buy a practice, then consolidate that practice with other practices to a point where they grow that platform. Some of the private equity is focused in one particular state. You and I are both New Jersey based, so they might be focused just in New Jersey where some try to do multi-state. But either way, the goal of a lot of these private equity firms in the healthcare space is uh, acquire, acquire, add on. And then at a point usually somewhere between four, five, six years, is they've done enough of a packaging to streamline, get everything very efficient, and quite frankly, clean up the balance sheet that they can flip it. I will just share briefly with the listeners, I've, from the business point of view, I've had an opportunity to work in both settings. And I couldn't agree with you more that there's such a stark difference between the two. I've, I've worked with an organization, with venture capitalists, And as you said, there was a focus on a business model. There was an effort to start figuring out how to generate revenue. As we're doing this, trying to keep investments to a minimum, hoping at some point to get ourselves initially to a positive cash flow and then to a business that hopefully we'll be able to grow. I found for myself going in as a business advisor on the physician side, a much more comfortable atmosphere. (laughs) Is about the best way I could say it. Even though it was a startup venture and there was a lot of unknowns, I think everyone felt that the um, people who were infusing the money understood the situation and were trying to work closely with us from a team point of view. Everybody was working together trying to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. On the private equity side, when I've gotten involved in those deals, what I've typically found is the private equity firm, they've got some very specific ideas 
of exactly how they're going to change the organization and make it better. And I found sometimes in those discussions, dealing with smart financial people on the private equity side, but not necessarily people who understand healthcare. And so it's an interesting situation where I found myself a few times trying to explain to, as I said, very bright and smart people financially, why making certain investments might make sense, but not in the two to three year period of time. And what is everybody's expectations in terms of the investment and aligning the expectations with the reality? Though You don't want to set up a project for failure. And it's aligning not only the company's mindset, but it's the investor's mindset too, making sure the two of them gel and on the same page. And if you have a a VC structure that, as you point out, it's more long-term. And yes, they're looking ways to cut costs. Yes, they're looking for ways to make it more efficient, but it's a different mindset. And it's just the expectation of what your partner is going to be doing and expecting of you. Exactly. Let's talk about from the physician practice point of view, what are some advantages of getting involved with a private equity firm? What types of physician or what situations or physician practices typically that you see that either come to you and say, we're looking for a partner here from Wall Street, a private equity firm, or vice versa, the private equity firm coming to you and saying, hey, are there any practices that you are working with who might be a good fit for us? I, I think that there's probably a handful of positives that are looked at out of the gate. One is naturally the exit strategy, the liquidation, the money, frankly. And the, historically, the way small medical practices or large medical practices have been set up is you've got a group of physician partners, you've got younger associates hired coming up through the ranks, they're on partnership track. And, and as the older physicians retire, their buyouts are often you know, funded by the, the younger folks coming in. And it's a cyclical process. The PE structure allows the whole concept to be accelerated for both the younger and the older which is mm-hmm. everybody gets to take money off the table day one. You're, you sell the practice or a chunk of the practice now, you get money in your pocket now. You always hear from the physicians who know where the healthcare market and, and environment is going to be in five years. So we'd rather put something in our, our, our pockets now. And so that's the first attractive point. And then the second attractive point and the way that the private equity groups that are coming in sells it is, hey, we'll give you cash now. And as they call it, the second bite of the apple in three, four, five years when flipped, and that's everybody's you know objective is to flip it again. You get a, a second bite, as they say, you get another cash exit at that point. So that I think is the, the number one on the list, followed closely by the reimbursement rate, they call it the lift, that that everybody hopes and expects to see. If you're out on your own uh, as a small group and you have payer contracts and you have certain reimbursement rates that were negotiated based upon whatever leverage you have, and you're, you're a small practice at that point. 
the whole theory of these private equity, you know, roll-ups in the healthcare field is as more headcount means more negotiating power or hopefully more negotiating power with the payer insurance companies, and you can get more favorable reimbursement rates. They call it the lift, which is you join this uh, bigger group and without doing anything, hopefully you see more of a reimbursement for the same procedure. So those are the, the, the naturally the two biggest enticements. I would agree that the physicians cashing out and not knowing what's going to happen in the future is, is a big one for them. I would think, though, that usually what I see is, and I think this is typical in most cases, I guess there could be some bonus dollars put out. But for the most part, whoever has equity is really the ones who are going to get the big money. The people have got equity. The Physicians that are on a partner track, as you mentioned, but don't have equity at this point, it's possible they could be given some dollars as part of this. It's not equity dollars, but they could get some dollars out of it. But I find that it can be a bit of a hard sell sometimes for the senior guys or gals who have the equity to try to convince everybody that this is good for the practice. Just talk about with this cash out, have you seen in the deals physicians that don't have equity yet? still getting some sort of a, a bonus payment or how does how do you see that work I, I will say michael that comes up quite often when you have the folks on partnership track and it might be making it up a three-year partnership track and somebody's two and a half years in yes you need to somehow recognize that person economically as a component of the deal and I have found more often than not, practices are in fact willing to share, maybe not a full share of proceeds that they would have otherwise gotten, but certainly uh, practices have been willing to share because they understand the, the, the reality. The reality is that a private equity purchaser, when they're buying on an EBITDA basis, they're buying on the, the full package. And these younger folks are part of the full package. And one way or another, they need to be you know, brought along. Otherwise, it's economic. Now, <laughs> now the, the second part of your, your question was, how do you get them the money? From a tax perspective, they may not be able to be treated the same in terms of receiving the dollars as the owners. But that's another problem that everybody understands. And it's something you need to deal with. But yeah, it, it's definitely something that everybody needs to focus on. And then the flip side of that is that on a post-closing go-forward basis, the question is, hey, we still need to attract new physicians. How do we attract the new physicians in this environment if there's no such thing anymore as a partnership track? And so the private equity side does recognize that and they have what they call a profit interest component that's often built into these deals that for the you know future generations some way, somehow for those future generations to participate. It's something that, especially with the pandemic, has accelerated from what we've seen, not only nationally, but certainly locally. A lot of physician organizations saying, it's time for me to look for a partner in this or looking for some additional infusion of funds after what we're going through here the last couple of years. On the other side, what are some of the things, maybe just the top you know, two or three things that you've gotten feedback as uh, why physician organizations either didn't like the deal with the private equity firm they got involved in, or once they heard the deal, told you, look, this isn't for us culturally or economically, whatever. What, what are some of the disadvantages that you hear from physicians in the marketplace about trying to do these deals? 
I think the one of the one of the bigger issues is resources that are needed from the seller practice in doing these deals. And I, what I mean by that is the private equity side does a very thorough due diligence review and investigation pre-closing leading into the deal. And the way these practices are structured in reality is you have an office manager and you probably have the, the head doc of the group, the president of the group. And no matter how big, no matter how small the group is, it usually falls on the shoulders of those two folks. And it can be, I I can't even state how heavy of a lift it is. I I tell clients all the time, it's a second full-time job. Your office manager is running the practice and full-time basis trying to sell the practice on the diligence side. And it's that's the the first biggest issue is the crushing time that it's needed pre-closing to do this. And, and second is the, the documents that are involved. And as an attorney, I'd hate to say it because it's what I live by, but it's, it's a lot of legal documents that are very dense, thick, and heavy. Obviously, my job is to simplify as much as possible. But the point is that however you shake it out, there's a lot of documents from a legal perspective that need to be dealt with. And so I think those out of the gate are the two biggest issues that we find on every one of these deals in terms of being significant issues. You did mention cultural as well. We could have a podcast on that uh, separately <laughs> in terms of going what you've done historically. I want to hire somebody. I want to buy a piece of equipment. I want to open a new office. What do you do? You do it. In, in the post-closing PE structure, <clears throat> it's not as simple. It's a discussion. And it's interesting. One of the uh, roles I've played in my career in any type of merger acquisition arrangement, I've typically represented the physicians. So basically, I'm usually on the side of the seller in these things. And we would get involved, as you said, with reviewing the due diligence that the private equity firms would do. And part of that would be, in effect, doing our own assessment of the practice and kind of compare what the seller believes is going on in their business versus what the buyer believes is going on and what some of the the goals are. Because one of the key things that comes out of these deals is the physicians are typically presented with future income statements, balance sheet statements, and and financially, we refer to these things as pro formas. And like 95% of the time, if they become part, like you said, of a bigger group, there's a lift hopefully with reimbursement, but almost always, whether they become part of another group or or not, the pro formas almost always show significant growth. (laughs) It's unbelievable, the growth usually. And I've been able to help physicians understand what all this means. So translating it to the physicians, to the business manager, and then as far as the documents, trying to, again, translate into English, what I actually found is that having some organization, but some other independent third party helping the physicians through these deals actually helped make more deals happen. Because like you said, it's totally confusing to them. And the business manager typically hasn't had experience doing anything like this and is trying to run the day-to-day operations, which unfortunately today, because of the staffing issues, there's been a lot of staff that's left physician organizations, hospitals, because of all of the stress during the pandemic. I've seen recently a lot of conferences that I've gotten involved in having not as many people come as we had hoped, 
And one of the reasons is the business managers who normally came said they can't get away from the practice. It dovetails into a, a closing I had last week where we lost the office manager contact for two days. One day she called up and said, I got four staff that called out today because of COVID issues. So I need to pick up the slack. And then the next right. day was I'm interviewing a bunch of folks today for new positions. And so I'm going to be out of pocket a good chunk of the day. hundred percent. It, 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 it's tough. It's really tough. The only other thing I'll mention about disadvantage, and you touched on it on the cultural side, and this is probably any deal that a physician practice makes where it's becoming part of another organization. And you had alluded to this about going out and opening up a site or buying equipment. We would repeat at meetings to the physician owners that they're going to lose control. Yeah. And what does that mean? And on how do you maintain some level of control? Like what are reports? What are meetings you can set up going forward so that you still have some relevance into running this business? And I find that the good thing about doing that, having this translation into English and letting the doctors know ahead of time what's coming is about 95% of the time when the deals go through, they get down the road six months or a year. They're not surprised by what's happening. If that is the case, I almost always have found they're happy. They're okay with the deal. Nothing that happened was surprising to them or upsetting to them because it was all explained to them ahead of time. But if the organizations go through without some sort of counseling, then it's almost always the opposite, I find. When I get called in for some assistance going forward, a lot of times by now the private equity firm, by the buyer, saying they're having trouble, <laughs> they're having trouble generating revenues, the doctors are upset, everybody's complaining. And then I sit down with the physicians and I said, oh, what's going on? Why is everybody so unhappy? And they have a list of all these things that they claim they were never told. But all of those things usually are in the legal documents. Everything's there. I'm going to uh, perhaps touch on a question that you'll ask later on, but I always tell folks before you really get knee deep into a deal, talk to the other practices that have already done the deal. Talk to the others because there's various phases. There's the pre-closing activities. There's the integration right at closing. And then what happens in reality after? And it's three distinct phases in my mind. And who better to talk to a physician about those three phases and the hands-on reality is their buddies that close the deal six months earlier. So I always say step one is go talk to somebody with this same buyer, the same you know private equity partner, go talk to somebody who's already done it because then, then that will open your eyes on both the goods and the, and the bads of the deal. I think that's great advice because that actually, that was my last point that we want to talk about what you've started already was, uh, and I was just going to refer to it as resources available for physicians going through this. Well, obviously, you're one resource, you're their attorney. So you're in a a good position, having done these deals to explain to them, how does this work? Their accountants, their consultant, whoever they work with on the business side, if they have any experience going through this, they should definitely spend time talking to them about it too. And how does it work? I think one of the things we could close here with are both our best estimates, but it's a tough one. I usually get the question, if everything is 
goes the way we hope and the money's right and um, we think we can work with these people going forward. How long is it going to take to get this deal done? And I'm curious as to what timelines you typically give people because we both know every deal is different and unique. What have you given them as a general rule? The way I see it is it's usually a good two to three weeks before I even hear from a client that something's going on. And they say, hey, I've been contacted by someone. So we've had the discussions. Then they sign a letter of intent. That can take, again, two, three, four weeks, give or take. Once they sign the letter of intent, that's when it triggers first 60, give or take days. You know, it could be 45, 60, somewhere around there is the, is the initial due diligence process. And then midway through the due diligence process, you hope that the legal side and documents really start. And long story short, I always tell folks from LOI signing, letter of intent signing to closing, you can ballpark it of 120 days, give or take. Could be longer, certainly. And I've had ones that shorter, but that's the ballpark. 120, 150 days, somewhere around there is a good estimate. I would agree. I, I would, in the past, very similar to what you're saying. I would say, assuming, and the way I would tell the physicians this, assuming everything you hear is to your liking, it's probably will take place in about six months. If you hear things that you really don't like <laughs> and you think needs further discussion, now we're talking probably six to nine months before something happens. I will say as we're sitting here now, it's mid-May. I'm starting to close on the deals that the letters of intent were signed in January. Okay. Uh, that's good. I think that's good timing. I want to thank you for being a guest on the podcast and uh, look forward to uh, further discussions about potential deal making with physician organizations. It was a pleasure, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. I want to tell our listeners, please follow our podcast. And if you sign up as a follower, you'll be told when the new episode is available. You can also email us at thehealthcaremaze at gmail.com with any comments and suggestions for future podcast topics. 